Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And uh, joining Tony and I today, all the way from Vancouver Island, is Noah Violini with Bartlett Tree Experts. And uh, Noah, welcome to Tree Actions. Thanks, Dwayne. Good to be here. <laughs> right on. I'm really excited to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, we always kind of kick things off. It's a pretty informal process. We're not sure where we're going to end up, but we always end up in some pretty cool places with our guests. And uh, I don't have any doubt. I, I know that it'll be the same with you. But we kind of start just to get the things rolling. Uh, and and you, I think we did a sprout with you at the ISA show. So I think you've touched on this a little bit. But if you just refresh us, how you your journey in the trees began? How how did it all start for Noah uh, as far as uh, your pathway into the trees and how how it started? Well, it started back, I think, when I was about 16 years old, Dwayne, I, uh, my father's best friend, Steve Lush, and he was our, he was our hunting partner, so I hunted with him. Um, I lived in Nelson, BC, in the interior of British Columbia, and, and uh, I was very close to Steve, and he had a tree service, Mountview Tree Service, in Victoria, BC, here, where, yeah. where I am, and yeah. uh, I asked him, I was like, man, I'd, I'd love to to work for you in the summer times. And, and so he's like, yeah, for sure. Come down. So I think that was in, I was in grade 10 and uh, came down in the summer, started working for Steve and then learned to climb that first couple months, man, you look back on it now and it's like two months I learned to climb. I, I probably was a terrible climber, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got some gear and, and uh, brought it back home to Nelson with me and a buddy and I started a uh, little tree service in Nelson during while we were going to school. So yeah, started back in, in whenever that was 84 somewhere there. That was the start. Wow. Of all. And and so do you remember what your climbing, your first climbing belt and not, and what kind of knot you used oh, and everything? And it was, yeah, it was a Blake knot and it was old line. And, you know, I, I probably sound like a broken record from all these, these guys that you interview because they're, you know, we're spurs on everything, Dwayne. And, and, uh, oh, wow. you know, when we started using a throw ball to get the line in the tree, we had this big rubber thing with a, 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 <laughs> yeah. a loop on the end. And it was, you throw it and hope you didn't hit the limb because it would bounce back at you at about a hundred miles an hour. But that's what yeah. we started doing spurless was with that big rubber ball in the trees. And yeah, it was really basic climbing. It was, uh, saws that didn't have anti-vibration you know that's probably paying for a lot of that stuff now and uh and wow. yeah and so i'd work every summers for steve and then as soon as i graduated high school i came down and started working full-time for mount Fee tree service so it was good times man so yeah and obviously you progressed along through that 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 company didn't you because you i mean i think a lot of people take a similar path but yours did you know, like you ended up acquiring that business somehow, didn't you? I did, yeah. So when I was, uh, I guess when I was about 21, Steve was wanting to retire, get out of it full time. And um, Mount View had been around since 62, 1962. And so Steve worked out a deal where I I, uh, I bought the company from him at 21 years old. And I, I think I still have the wow. the deal. He wrote it up on a piece of full scap paper that I agreed to pay him so much per month till I paid off the company and, and uh, wow. you know, we, it was all on a handshake and no lawyers involved. 
And uh, so, yeah, I had the company and great crew of people. We did utility work. We did, uh, I think that's probably when you and I first met, Wayne, was back in the Mountview days, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually our, our official meeting probably predates a little bit going back to high school wrestling. Yeah, there you go. The Nationals in uh, Vancouver. Yeah, when they were in uh, Burnaby. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We were a different weight class. That would have been in. Yeah, that would have been in like 20 oh. or sorry, in 1984. Was it? It was later than that, I think. But yeah, it was right around 86. Yeah. Yeah, 85, 86. Yeah. Yeah, 86, 86. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think when it was. Yeah, I definitely knew you before Bartlett. Like, I knew you when it was Mountain View. Yeah. But um, um, I didn't realize how young you were when you got, you know, it's interesting. I was one of the youngest instructors ever at Olds College to get hired full time. And I, was, I wasn't that young, but I was pre-25. I think it was 23 or 24. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. You really, there isn't a lot of people that do the same thing, like their entire career going back to such a wee young age, you know, like, like you 15, I think you said, like, you know, you started it and then by 21 as a company owner and then, and to this day, you're still doing the same stuff. You know, that's, uh, there must be something about the trees that calls to you more than just the fact that it's a job. Yeah, you know, it's, I got to say that that time period between 16 and 21, when I bought the company, Steve was nice enough. I'd work for six months and travel for six months. So I kind of got the travel bug out uh -huh. and it was, it was awesome. But, you know, it's, I got to say it's, it's, you know, it's all, it's the people, right? We hire wonderful people in this industry and just surround ourselves with, with really awesome people, Dwayne. And it's, you know, my son, Luke, now he, he works with us at Bartlett and, He's good buddies with yeah. your son, DJ. And how cool is that, that here we are a million yeah. years later and our sons are hanging out together and um, just out the window yeah. here, they've got a training tree set up there. These guys are killing it. And, and uh, man, we work with a really cool bunch of people. Well, you know, and it was exactly the, the uh, well, pretty much it's the reason why we got kind of come up with this concept of the human forest, you know, and, and, uh, that there's the, we you know, we all, we, we were connected through trees, but, you know, interests, hobbies, likes, family, in some cases like this, you know, where, you know, you and I have been in the industry now, our sons are both in the industry and, and forming a relationship and have a friendship and a connection and compete together. And, you know, it's, it's, it's strengthened our relationship too. It's really fascinating, you know, and I wonder how, if it's like that in the actual forest, as far as trees, like the older trees helping the younger trees, you know, the, Suzanne Samard has suggested that that takes place. But what do you, what are your thoughts on that whole thing of, you know, I'm obviously tree, we help each other. Do trees help each other like that? Do you think that occurs? You know, that's, that's so funny. You brought that up because um, Richard Trippett, who's our division manager for England, Ireland, we became very close. He's, um, and he's actually out here right now with his family and his two sons and his wife. And we have a little cottage on our property. They're staying there. We're walking around looking at the trees yesterday. And we have a little five acre property here. And we've had to, you know, clear it out for fields and the cottage and everything yeah. else. And, and he was admiring it, how tall the firs were 
and they were kind of a second growth fir. And because we cleared it out, there's not a lot of canopy until you get to the top or third. And I was telling them that, man, we get some strong winds here and, and I'm really encouraging the younger growth to come up and fill it in. But it's amazing how the trees all work together. And when the wind's blowing, you can just watch them. The, the limbs don't break off. They just move and sway together. And we're just praying these young ones get up to protect the older ones because they're, um, before they come over, you know, once you start clearing them out, and they come over, then you get that effect that is just a domino effect. But yeah, we just had that conversation yesterday about how the, the younger firs are protecting the older ones. And, you know, what do you have to do sometimes when you have fringe trees, you got to, you got to adjust the way the canopies are in order for them to last and bring up the new growth. So I guess that's kind of like you and I, yeah. as a couple of old growths like us, eh, Dwayne? We've got our young guys coming up yeah, to protect exactly. us. <laughs> exactly. Pretty soon they're going to have to hold us up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, while you were talking about that and the, and the winds, you know, it made me think of something that I get asked a lot about. And, uh, you know, you're going to – probably one of the people that has some of the most experience of this of anyone I know. And you hear people talk about spiral thinning and spiral pruning. I mean, it's been a common practice for years, although I don't know how common it is anymore. And, and uh, its effectiveness has been debated. Some say it's absolutely effective. Some say not, you know, I, where, what are your, uh, what, what would you, what could you tell us about that whole, concept of spiral pruning or thinning as it's called well you know I, I when i'm talking to my people out in the field i think we got to take each tree and look at it individually and i don't think you can take one type of pruning and say spiral thinning is the way to do it subordination of codominant limbs is a way to do it you got to look at the scenario what it is is there a house nearby is there wires nearby even a, a douglas fir like you think about what is in your mind, right when I say to you, what is a Douglas fir's growth? What does it look like? What does your average Douglas fir look like in your head, Dwayne? Well, the average Douglas fir, oh my goodness. Uh, a, a mature Douglas fir, I find they, they get flat-headed around large tops and very thick stems, and I would say 200 feet. So, and, but, and, but a young one is quite tapered, pointy-topped at 120. 150? Sure. So that that's like, that's your average in your head. And, but it's so different when you're on the coast here. Like we get these dug firs on the ocean that aren't that tall. They're maybe 60 feet, but you get a, a limb span of 50 feet. So maybe on a tree like oh, that, wow. you need to reduce the length of the limbs so they don't break off if it's been right. cleared by it. We were up at Capilano yeah. Suspension Bridge with um, Richard the other day, and the average tree height up there is 220 feet. And they've got um, right. they've got bridges under. They have tourists under them. So maybe you know we've got to do some hazard pruning. Maybe if you take out a a, a bunch of trees, you got to radial thin or spiral thin the trees that are on the fringe because now they're exposed to the wind. So I just I really struggle saying all Douglas firs or all Western red cedars should be spiral thinned or radial thin. Maybe some need need the limbs need to be shortened. Maybe. Um, I, I have one on the property here is codominant stems and the they're big. The smallest of the codominant stems was about 18 inches, but I didn't, I didn't want to cable brace it. And I didn't like the, the look of the union. So um, I got my son to reduce the height of the weakest codominant stem. And we're going to see what that does is, yeah. you know, probably have to retop that yeah. one, but now the other stem is becoming more dominant. So 
yeah, again, it's just really hard to say this is the way all trees should be. And remember, uh, you know, to, again, not to cliche things too much, but remember Shigo used to always say you have to touch trees and you have to, you have to look yeah. inside the tree. And that's, you know, I have a little sawmill, a little Woodmiser sawmill on my property here. And I've learned more about trees yeah. and growth and strength of wood by milling wood than, than I ever learned in a book, you know, and there's something to be said for right. that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, and I, I like your answer and it makes sense to me, you know, because trees are unique, not, not just the trees, but uh, the location, you know, cause you didn't, you mentioned, is there power lines? Uh, is there target? Then what are the targets underneath? Like, like those are all factors that have to be considered in, you know, and I think it's the real, the, the real thing that separates the urban forest as it's been, you know, started to been called from the, from the actual forest or from the, the wild forest, you know, and the, is that we're cohabiting, like we're, we're cohabiting, you know, and, and on the West coast, particularly, you know, where you have probably the best growing conditions for trees in the world, you know, the Pacific Northwest, I think if there was ever a, that, that's where trees like came from, you know, it's Eden for trees and uh, you know, temperate, mild, moist, it's everything a tree needs and you have some magnificent species and such massive, you know, as a result, such massive trees that have to cohabit with not only people, but what everything people make and create and uh, all the consequences goes with it, like pavement and construction and everything else. So there is really is a, a case by case basis. And again, kind of like people, right? We're all not one is the same. And I don't think there's one tree that's the same. So how could you, apply an application to every single one that's the same you know it makes sense yeah and uh you know and you know we have offices in through the okanagan and calgary and boy i don't envy you uh trying to grow trees in alberta man with the chinooks that you get and everything there it's it's a whole different deal and, yeah. the, and the value that people yeah. put on trees in calgary compared to um, us on the coast here it's you know we we take it for granted like you said everything will grow here so Often when we get a tree here that's not that big with structural issues or something, you know, we will say remove it and replant. Heck, you don't do that in Calgary because it takes a long time. And once <laughs> you get something that's up around 12 inch diameter, that's a that's a beauty tree. That's a heritage tree. <laughs> yeah, it can be, and it very much is. Uh, you know, and I think that that's probably one of the uh important factors to consider with a company like you or yours, you know, where you're, you're, uh, you're in such different regions and, you know, uh, uh, the same species of tree in a completely different location is not, you know, it's not treating it in the same way. And, and uh, I've, you know, I've been fortunate to travel and do training in, in all, a lot of different locations. And years ago, realizing that, you know, there's such a difference in, in location, you know, and, and geography. I wonder if it affects people that way too. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, you know, there's, there's something to be said to be in, uh, be surrounded by forests and oceans and everything else that I'm here. It puts a smile on your face every single day. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I have known I, in my, I used to comment on it and just, it just jogged my memory. Like, I, when where it's where it's mild and warm consistently i find i don't know i, I don't want to alienate anyone but i feel that it, like it's easier to be happier or that people are generally more have more upbeat and positive where it's temperate and mild uh particularly warm and with sun you know 
uh, long, cold, dark winters, which they have their beauty. There is a certain, and you know, and I think it's well documented about depression and everything else that it goes up. And and even in, in the West Coast, where it rains, like, like you're in the island, much less rain than Vancouver. Like it's well documented there where they'll get a month straight of rain, even though it's not cold. And that affects our personality. You know, it's good for the trees, but it's not so good for the human forest. <laughs> you know, that's 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 interesting you say that, Dwayne, because, you know, unfortunately now my job has shifted from trees to more personnel and, and management, as you know, and it's, uh, yeah. uh, I, I love it, but maybe not as much as dealing with trees. <laughs> um, but right. it would be interesting. We have probably in Canada, we're pushing staff around 200 right now. So, you know, I, I deal with a lot of management issues and it would be interesting to put it on a, a graph of the issues that we're seeing with our people, the mental issues, uh, uh, whatever it is uh, for the seasons, because I can guarantee you we're seeing 80% more of those issues between probably November and, and January than we would in, uh, in this time of year, right? It's, it's the cold weather, the rain, the, the, it's just depressions, seasonal emotional disorder, right? It's a little bit of that, but we definitely yep. see more in the winter. And just like with trees, that's when we see the failures and the winds and the storms. Exactly. Well, that's fascinating, you know, and, and isn't it true? Like Eve, so the trees, you know, have are dealing there. They do, they have, there's more, uh, I don't know if you call it failure season, but yeah, there's, there's more breakage that occurs different times of the year that's uh yeah i don't know if that's ever been tracked that's an interesting uh uh thought there tony what do you think of that you think there's a yeah i definitely think there could be you know be here here on the east coast of you know down in the states we don't our weather patterns aren't quite as um consistent you know we get winter summer we have all four seasons i love it but we don't have like uh, we've had winter here, winters here that have been, you know, extremely cold and snowy. And then we've had winters here where it's been, it's not gotten below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, um, so it goes back and forth. So one of the parts I love about living in this part of the world is if you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes, it'll change. Um, but I get, get all four of them, but I definitely, definitely see that. And I think maybe there's a lesson to be learned there in people management, especially in tree care. Um, you know, that in the wintertime, it is time to, and a lot of tree companies, I think, do kind of shut down a little bit, kind of scale back the major operations as best as possible through the winter. Um, some of it's weather related. Some of it could definitely be personnel related. And maybe there is something to that, to like, you know, uh, you know, the old make hay while the sun shines, we'll prune trees while they grow, right? You know, and then, and, and let them alone the rest of the time or something. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I, it's not something I've specifically observed, but I think it's because where I'm at, our weather can be so invariable. We don't have those consistencies, you know, up by you, Dwayne in, in Alberta, it's winter, it's cold down here. It's probably going to be colder in the summer, but it's, you know, there's not, we don't have that, that consistency. I can have three foot of snow for the whole month of February, or I could have rain. It's just hard to say. Well, the one thing I noticed from here that that's the saving grace, while it can be incredibly cold and people will, you know, I'll be talking to someone, they'll ask about the weather, which is commonplace, you know, that's what we do. And I'll tell them it's minus 35 or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, how can you even live in that? You know, how can you stand it? But typically when we have really cold, the colder it gets, the, the less clouds you have. And it is brilliant sun. Like in, with the snow on the ground, it's actually like so bright 
I, it almost makes up for the cold. Like, like, and, and it certainly isn't depressing. It's really tough to be depressed when it's brilliantly bright out and the snow is just glistening, like literally like diamonds shining. And as cold as it is, you can't, you, it's hard to be depressed, but if it's blowing blizzard wind and it's cloudy and blowing, then it's not so fun. <laughs> but you know that you'll go through a couple of days and then we'll have like a week of just brilliant sun and, and, and everything's white. And it, it, you know, it's, you know, I don't find depression occurs during those time periods. And, you know, interesting enough, wind breakage too, you know, isn't obviously even failures in general in that time frame. We just don't get when it gets cold enough, the weather doesn't get quite as extreme. It's interesting how it shifts, but, uh, um, but you don't get that much rain on the island as much as like say Vancouver. Do you know what you guys get considerably less? We get a lot compared to what you get, Dwayne, but it's, uh, you know, and we're seeing we're going through these periods now of extreme rains in the winter and and extreme dryness drought in the in the summer. And and when I was driving up island to to Fino last on the weekend, just looking around at the the trees that are really feeling the pain from that. The the western red cedars. There's, I said to my wife, I was like, man, look at that hillside because you know you can see the big silver tops when the western red cedars are they fit they're starting to die and the tops go first and just amazing at yeah. the amount of them that are suffering from this environmental change. Um, looking up on the hillside behind my my office here, the Doug firs are thinning out. The ones on my property are nice and green because we irrigate. We are, um, but yeah, it's you know our, it's concerning what how our ecosystem is going to change in the next few years with these this heat and and. Uh, we're, you know, we're considering water management on our large properties because we get so much in the, in the winter and, and again, not so much in the summer. So something we have to think about, where are we going to be in 20 years? What kind of trees are we going to be growing? And I think you're seeing that in Calgary with the Chinooks and everything else as well, aren't you? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people talking about like, like, a like the climate shift or change and that, you know, we need to plant trees accordingly. Like we can we either ex, expand or change our lexicon or what we choose to plant based on what what we anticipate maybe happening or coming. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about. That's exactly it, yeah. You know, it, again, I was talking with Richard uh, from England yesterday about native trees. And uh, he said, you know, there's only like, I, I forget what it was, 15, 16 native trees in England. But we there's been people there for so long that they assume like a copper beach is native, but that's not that's not a native tree in England. So are we going to lose that? Like, no, are we no. going to remember what are our native trees to to these areas here? And, and and heck, I don't know if native trees are the best bet anymore because things are changing. Right? Do we have to plant trees that can survive the drought? Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I I've thought about that too. I I don't know and. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I definitely, I definitely see by me like the the changing environment and the climate and however you want to address it. You know, with it's made people a lot more aware on a smaller scale. You know, homeowners and stuff, and it's made them. You know, we start to see people really, really interested now in planting trees. You know, not just for the aesthetics of it, or I want a screen, or they're looking at it, you know, from habitat management to, you know, water retention to all these things. And it's, I think it's, it's really kind of interesting to see, 
you know, before you just put in retention ponds because, you know, you can only let so much go into the stream. Now they're putting in retention ponds that are, you know, basically they're trying to turn them into swamps because of we because you have to manage the water. Right. It's not, you know, here we're an inch. Of, we're supposed to be, you know, an inch a week, four inches a month. And, you know, we kind of average that, but it's not that consistent. So people are really starting to to look at trees and tree planting and the habitat of their own little you know, their own little lots, you know, everywhere from, you know, we deal with everything from, you know, commercial properties have been doing it for a bit to, you know, the guy that has three, four acres and he's like, well, you know, I was, it used to just be a pasture, but now I think I'd rather it be a forest. And I think it's, you know, one of the, the silver linings of all this is that people are more aware of it and they're understanding that, you know, if you do just have a half acre lot or one acre lot, and if all your neighbors, you know, plant a couple more trees and manage things a little bit better, it, it makes a difference. You know, it makes a big difference locally. And if enough of it, it'll do it on a, on a much larger scale. Yeah, and diversity in planting too, right? Like we've seen it for years where, especially in cities that do a monoculture, it would be all one. It was, it was you know, typical in Victoria. There was a lot of, they plant streets of cherries. And then we get these pests and disease issues that we hadn't really seen before. Um, and birches get bronze birch borer. And then it wipes out a whole street. So it's really great to see the cities doing some diversity in planting. There's not one species on all all the boulevards. They're they're planting more. They're planting different ones. There's new ones being being brought into the communities all the time. And and I mean the the pests and disease issues that we see slowly creeping across the country are are uh, something we all need to be aware of and and plant to to avoid our complete forests, complete cities getting wiped out. Yeah. I, my my brain drifted slightly in that. That's not like you, Dwayne. Because, well, <laughs> what I, I was. That never I happens. I thinking, you know, we're talking West Coast and all the West Coast stuff. And you mentioned in your in the beginning that you said about, when I asked you about your climbing stuff and that, and you mentioned spurs. And, uh, you know, it it's, you know, spur climbing has been like, I, well, when you think of spur climbing, at least for me in Canada and my travels, I always think West Coast. I mean, it's where it, it still seems to come up the most. And I'm just, I just, I don't know why it just popped into my head. Do you, would you, first of all, would you agree with that? Or, or where does the legacy of spur climbing and why does it seem to be, have, have lasted so long or exist even in a lot of places still in the West Coast? Is there... Do you, what, what do you think? That, like, even you, you, I think you learned to climb probably oh, yeah. using spurs. Yeah, Steve, when he taught me so how what, to, Why is that? Why was that? When he taught me how to climb, I remember he was had me on belay on a fir tree, and my belt didn't even have a flip line. And he said, I need you to learn how to fingernail it up a tree. So I'd have spurs on and just hanging on to the bark. I was on belay, so if I slipped out. But that was the way that we did it. And I, and I think a lot of it here, guys, is that... Um, you know, was, again, I was up in Long Beach on the weekend in Tofino. They used to call it Tough Town. I didn't realize that up there. And it was all fishermen and loggers. That's all it was in Tofino. And the loggers used to, the trees were so big, they'd climb up and blow out big tops out of them and, and then fall the sticks. And to get up up in the in the trees, they'd have to use spurs. I mean, they're logging anyways. It didn't matter to put holes in them. But when, when I first started doing... Uh, in the tree care industry, probably half of the guys that I worked with were ex-loggers. So that was their background. That's all they knew is how to get up on up in trees with spurs. And and so that industry, the logging industry, was really brought over to tree care. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember one one uh, guy we had hired fresh out of the bush, and he 
he was just dragging brush. He was at shut down for fire season or something. And we didn't realize it, but the client called and complained after because they had had a cedar deck on their, on their house and he was walking back and forth and he had his corks on still from the bush. So he put, you know, million holes. We had to replace the, the cedar deck for our clients because the guy had the, you know, that's the only boots he had. But that was the way the industry was 30 years ago. It was It was people that were used to logging, used to working in the bush, climbing with spurs on and like, hey, man, you can come and work for us. If we can get up a tree, we'll hire you. And, and that's what dragged on. So I, I think probably on the West Coast here where we... We dragged it on too long climbing with spurs and and hiring um it's it's a complete different trade you know when you think about it now think about what our boys are doing in their training Dwayne. i mean they're they're not yep. they're not loggers yep. no no you know it's interesting you, you said i i never thought of that before because i've seen you know i knew that they would go take tops of uh, and and create spars for you know for setting uh rigging to you know to create a uh, a rigging point to drag logs and lift logs even and so on on a logging site but um i never had heard until you just mentioned it like if you had a really really big tree it might be easier to fell that the same reason we do it in the urban like easier to take the top out so you can fell the stick with more accuracy and less obstacles right so i i, I never had heard this before but i think what i what you were saying is that would they do that as a kind of, as a, in some cases, because of the size of the tree, they take the top first just to make it easier to fell. Yeah. And I think also too, so they didn't break the log, right? If you're falling on some of these steep slopes and you just, if you take the top out and you're just falling the stick, then you, you get more lumber out of it. It's nothing worse than falling a tree and it busting up when it hits the ground. So, um, and you know, and then in the later years here, when helicopter logging came in, they would take the tops out and the helicopters would pick them up. So I, I know a couple of our guys did that. They would, they were select yeah. logging, right? So um, I never did it. You probably know as much about it as I do, Dwayne, but I think they would, you know, they'd take a top out, leave a spar pull, cut in from both sides and the helicopter would bust it off and take it away, something like that. Yep, yeah, yeah, no, definitely would do that. Yeah, and, but, uh, you know, I never thought of of spurs being like like standard loggers equipment. I thought it would be more for, you know, there would be a select few that would, that would, that would spur, but maybe there was a lot more loggers spurring than I ever realized. Yeah. And to set the, the, setting the spar poles too, right. They would climb up and take the top off and uh, they would leave the tree standing. And that would be the spar pole for bringing other logs up the embankment. So there was those guys yeah. that just yeah. did that and they just had a belt with a flip line and long spurs, you know, on the West coast here, we always made sure our climbers had the, the Buckingham long spurs, not the pole spurs, because it bark so thick on the Doug furs, you had to really hammer it through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so was Buckingham the ones that first made a long spur like that? I think they were. I think there was, uh, I think Buckingham, what I remember, yeah, they had an interchangeable, they had an interchangeable spur. And then you'd always get guys yeah. that, you know, got got spurs cheap from their buddy that was working for uh bc tell or something and they're completely useless on the trees they're good pull spurs but they're just about an inch long so you never get through the bark on them but man you know you look around at the climbers now and I, I i you know they're i know some of the guys even there's in an office there'll be three sets of spurs the guys don't have their own spurs they just use them for removals and they're all doing spurless climbing i, I 
I, I, yeah. I look at the gear now and it's so much closer to mountaineering gear than, than what I remember is tree gear, right? Never mind the saws and chippers yeah. and all the equipment where we're going with that. It's just, uh, yeah, it's making me feel old, Dwayne. You're making me feel old on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I started climbing in 89, 89 or 90. And uh, let me see, it would have been 89, 90, winter of 90 and uh, or 89. Anyway, um, and I, the company I was at were really that the the guy that started the tree division so it was a lawn company that started a tree division because they wanted to they were losing their their good workers to the oil patch over the winter and the guys wouldn't come back so they wanted to have give some of their their good workers year-round employment and they needed something for them to do in the winter and so they started a tree division and uh i got hired on uh, out of the university of saskatchewan I worked at the nursery there and I ended up because I'd learned Latin there, they figured I needed to be in the tree department and I ended up getting sent to school. And next thing I know, like after not even a season, I was full time, which was rare. Normally you had to been there a while. And because of my background, I ended up there. So, but this guy that ran this division had just gone to a Shigo workshop and he basically worshiped him. And so I had this, and uh, that's how I learned first about Shigo. And you mentioned Shigo earlier. But then we he, spurring was bad, you know, like you don't spur. And people, a lot of people were still spurring even in, in the prairies then. But the company I was at, it was a new division. They did everything Shigo way. We never topped nothing. That was a, just an outright flagrant no-no. And you didn't spur anything. So I learned to climb you know, not nothing fancy, but no spurs and no topics. So I was an over thinning SOB. Like, you know, I thought I was doing good and so did we all, but we were lion's tailors. Like we were lion tamers, man. Like, because you still had to get enough brush on the ground to make it look like you did something. So there was that, I remember Shigo a couple of years later hearing him talk and he's like, listen, just because you're not topping doesn't mean you're not hurting the tree. You got just as much brush on the ground from a topping cut as you do from a thinning cut. You've taken too much. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but I never did anything with spurs, right? But then when I went to another company, everyone's going, "What do you mean you don't know how to use spurs?" It was like standard equipment. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like what you're talking about. You know, I just grabbed something off my wall here for to to sh to read to you guys. It's um, my wife's uh, father passed away, and. Uh, and she was cleaning out all the paperwork out of their house and her mom never threw away any bills. And I, I, I think I said Mount View Tree Service was started in 62. And so Denise was going through the uh, paperwork and she found an old bill that her mom kept from uh, 1972 uh, to Mount View Tree Service. And I'll just read you the work order here. It's written, it's handwritten. I know we're on a podcast, nobody can see anything, but it says top one yeah. fur, fall one fur, Take limbs off three for forty dollars. That's the work order. Those are the specs. Top one, fall one, take limbs off three for forty bucks. <laughs> forty bucks. Nineteen seventy-two. Yeah. Wow. So, what do you think? Like, how big do you think they would have been? Well, like, almost like they're on the ocean. They're big trees. I like. They they just sold the house, so you know Bartlett's worked in those firs. They're Oh man, they're probably three foot diameter, 120, 130 foot tall. So yeah, 
<laughs> and they're still there. Well, they're still the, there. The, they, the fallen one isn't there anymore. That was gone. But the top one, right. I'm sure they're there in the, uh, yeah, as for view clearing of the ocean. But 40 bucks. I saw that. You know, that's like, an yeah, interesting. That explains why I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> what a what a deal. <laughs> you know, it brings up another interesting point. And I remember, you know, because of, you know, we're all so much a part of product of our environment. And, you know, being raised my first few years in the tree care industry or in the as a client learning to climb spurless and you don't top anything and everything was Shigo says, Shigo says. Um I was astonished when I first started realizing how much like I guess you could call it topping or height reduction is done, particularly on the West Coast, on these large, large tall trees that, you know, you got to be a hell of a climber just to even see that where the cuts were made. But then, you know, having been up there more than once and realizing, you know, they're not, they seem to, it it, it doesn't have the effect that I was led to believe that it's certainly not the effect the top tree on the prairies receives. Like it's a very different and conifers in general, they just handle it in a very different manner and live for like long, 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 long time. And even the regrowth, the, the candelabras that develop, like there is some management, but, but what is, uh, you know, you know, you answered the, the spiral thinning by saying every tree's different, but you know, do you, like it's, it just because of height and and views, you, there is a lot more. I guess they can call it vista pruning. But what do you have to say about that whole thing? The 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 reduction or topping of firs for whatever reason. Well, you or know, of of conifers in general. Yeah, you know this could lead down that whole path of it's you know their product of their environment and the if they're healthier they're going to compartmentalize better than trees that aren't healthy and same as humans. You know we can. Go down that pathway, but I, you know, topping Doug firs is not a, it's not a good thing. I mean, there, I again, I've been up trees that were that I had topped, and I had been up them 20 years later, and and you can almost tear out the new tops just manually because the decay's setting in, and you, you know, we have the the top growing up, the new tops, multiple tops growing on the side. But again, every tree is different, and arbutus, which as you know, are are common here. I got to say that that when they're reduced in height, they actually, the new growth is, it looks much healthier than the old growth. And they compartmentalize really well if there are small cuts that are made. And that's a lot of the, um, a lot of the view clearing or vista clearing that's done here. It's it's often on Arbutus because the view clearing happens on the the coast and that's where Arbutus are predominantly growing. So you're making a lot of small cuts and that new growth that comes up right. is the most lush green growth that compartmentalize really well, especially small cuts. Maples are the same. Again, with Doug firs, what yeah. we prefer to do is let them get up and above your growth and then take off the lower limbs so you can see down around them, but don't pop them. So again, it's, it's species specific and it's, it's uh, trying to get people to buy into a little bit. You know what? a tree in your view, if we can get you some view of the ocean, it's going to be a better view because that tree is a beautiful thing that you're looking at. And that's, so we have to get people thinking, but again, it's, it's, you know, like when I'm looking at trees, Dwayne in, in Alberta, the Okanagan and Toronto versus on the West coast, the compartmentalization, the, the, the calcine over of the wounds is so much better and where we're getting that vigorous growth like we do on the coast here. Interesting. Interesting. It, you know, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't know that Shigo 
ever said like uh, that, you know, when he talked about topping, he, he, I think he was very specific. And I remember a lot he would talk about dosage. He said so much comes down to dosage. And when you when you mentioned small cuts, you know, it it's it, everything has to do with that with the amount and how severe it is, right? And and um, even the, the how much energy, you know, when you're making smaller cuts, you're in more dynamic tissue that has energy throughout the entire stem, and therefore its ability to grow wound wood and compartmentalize just just goes way up on any species, really. But uh, that was always a big thing he would he would uh, talk about is dosage, dosage, dosage. So, you know, and then kept balancing that in with the tree itself. And, uh, you know, he would have loved, I know, because I got to know Alex pretty good, but as the answer of every tree. Well, first of all, touching trees, like you said, and that every tree is different. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple of times about trees and people, you know, like you met in reference to compartmentalization and, and uh you know and the, how we deal with with life and so on um you know maybe we could just take a little bit of time and delve into that a little bit like like cuz we do you know i often myself can think about how a a tree could be like me you know or you know where i really started thinking about it was john gathright when he became isa president and in his in his acceptance speech he was talking about treehab that he formed and I've heard him talk about more than once where one of the exercises they do is have, uh, you know, traumatized individuals go through on a forest walk and they find a tree that, that, that they feel is like them. And then they talk about why that tree is like them. Like if it's real twisted or hollow or broken, you know, and, and they did, and they're able to talk about their trauma and the traumatic experience using the tree as the example. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us do that maybe more. So maybe, maybe openly, maybe secretively, but, uh, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times and, you know, being a human forestry podcast, it was kind of the angle that I'm starting to expand more on, I guess, maybe in my age, but, but how do you feel your knowledge of trees and experience with trees and people, which you manage with a lot now, how do you, do you draw correlations and, and, and how does that look for Noah? Like, how does that show up in your life as far as? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like listening to you right there, Dwayne. That was, that was good. I, we got to talk more offline on that. That's, uh, that's a, a real good path. <laughs> we can go down there. It's a lot of fun, but I'll tell you, I, uh, I lost my, my, uh, best buddy, dog on the weekend uh last weekend german shepherd oh. lupo and he's like the most oh. yeah it killed me i was so close with him and um he's a black german shepherd 120 pounds and uh oh. he just he's 12 years old it was time for him to go we had to put him down we put him down at home here and um his last night i slept on the deck with him uh because he was suffering a little yeah. bit and uh yeah. so Denise said, you know, what, what kind of tree are you going to plant for Lupo? Cause I always bury them on the property here and I plant a tree and I was like, man, I've already thought yeah. of it. It's going to be a copper beech, and I, cause there's such a big majestic tree and it reminds me of Lupo and I'm going to plant it in the middle of the field. And because in the copper beech, the limbs, I'm going to let the limbs get right to the ground. You know how they do that when they haven't been pruned. 
and it's just a beautiful tree yep. and it'll get it such a diameter. So, you know, I, I, it's, that's to me, that's what trees are. They, like you say, they signify their, their, I have, I have my pets buried all over with really cool trees planted on them. And, and uh, you know, if, if someday when I pass away, I, I would think that'd be a real cool thing. If, if my son could pick a tree that he thinks reminds him of me and that would be, that'd be a good way wow. to be buried, I think. So I don't know if I answered your question, yeah. but that's kind of what that's the trees are just such a huge part of our life. And I, and when you're talking about walking through the woods and picking a tree that you think is like you, I, I, heck, I don't know what it would be for me, but, um, might change daily. I don't know. What's your, what's your thoughts, Dwayne? What's Tony, sure. Tony, I want to ask yeah. Tony, what's your tree? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, probably a dead Atlantis just bolted <laughs> in the way. Uh, all right. Uh, any tree with self-love issues? Yeah, that that's my tree right there. Wow. Wow. I think it's maybe, it's maybe better for your loved ones to pick a tree for you, Tony. I'll leave you out of that. Yeah. yeah I told him I wanted to be cremated and packed in an artillery shell and launched towards the enemy. I, just, I don't know if they'll do it. I figure my daughter probably just flushed me down the toilet. Um, at that point, but I don't know. I never, never really thought about it that way. It would be interesting to, you know, how would you describe yourself tree wise? I don't know. Never really thought about it. Um, yeah. You know, in that, in that scenario, you know, with specifically children or I don't know if it was just children, but, but individuals who were unable to talk about their trauma and were able to find an outlet for it by saying this tree is like me because, and it wasn't, they weren't, they, these people wouldn't even know what tree it was. It was the way it was twisted or grown or bent or whatever. And that's how they found a connection. And, you know, I certainly feel that wound wood and the whole compartmentalization model and how trees, you know, grow new wood in new places to, strengthen themselves to stay vertical to stay alive you could call it um how that's for me where the symbolism really draws in you know i've experienced things in my life that have been difficult and and you know when you look back when you survive it you know you go through those difficult times i i think that it does something there's a resiliency and a strength that forms if if you're I mean, I, I guess things have to happen the right way, but typically in my life so far, you know, I'm, I come out different and stronger and the, the wood that forms after the injury is stronger than the wood that was there previous. And I stay standing, I'm able to move forward. And, and that's, I think one of the most powerful symbolisms that trees have, you know, they don't regrow the part that was lost or injured or wounded. They just seal it up or they, and, and in that process of sealing it up, they they fortify the wood around the wound to make it as strong as it was before the injury occurred. Like what a beautiful symbol of of what happens in people, I think. You know, and that's the, you know, I guess, you know, depending how recent the wound is, the 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 more open the wound is, the longer the more visible the the wound wood is, you know, and in time the wound wood as that wound heals it'll, it'll stop producing woodwood because it doesn't feel the pain anymore. You know, and how, how much, how much aren't we like that? You know, and how much, how time is such a healer and, and in trees very much. So, you know, I just taught a track course last week and it, you know, one of the things they talk about is how, you know, recency, how recent is the site changes? How recent is the injury? How recent was the neighboring tree removed? 
you know, you're, you have a recent loss in your life right now. Right. And, and then, you know, I'm, I'm much more sensitive to that. I've got a, we got a new dog a couple of years. He's two, he's with us two years now and he's just become so connected to me. It's ridiculous. And so when someone talks about losing their dog, like you just did, it just, cause I know the day is going to come. I'm assuming anyway, that I'll probably outlive him, but it's going to be one brutal day, you know, um, difficult. And, uh, you know, now you have that recent, but you also have all the experience of that you can coalesce into the rest of your life, you know, and you're going to remember it in, in a legacy tree. And I know that I also talk too much, so I need to stop now, but, <laughs> but, uh, that that's, that's the real, uh, probably one of the most powerful symbolisms. And in my journeys, I've, I've shared that with people that aren't, aren't tree people. They don't know anything really about trees and, you know, I'll be walking with some friends or whatever. And, you know, I'll, I'll show them Woundwood and say what happened. And they're like, wow, you know, that's so cool. And how much like, aren't we like trees in that way? You know, I think very much so. Our Woundwood is built and designed to make us stronger. You know what would be cool, Dwayne, to, to kind of add on to that for you and, and Tony and me to think about that maybe when we go, we got to be like a nature log, right? When you walk in the forest here and you see these nature logs that are gone and then these beautiful hemlocks that are sprouting up from them and the, and the blueberries and everything else, that'd be a pretty cool legacy for the three of us to think about going away that way and, and being a nature log. And already, like we said, our boys are sprouting up great arborists and and yep. uh, yeah, let's, let's go away being nature logs. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that again, when we talked about the human forest and the, when the concept kind of began, you know, we, we were, we were having a team event and we were, we were saying our goodbyes. It was our last, everyone was leaving and getting ready to go. And we were doing a group picture. And one of the guys just said, Oh, here, I'm, I'm really glad to be part of the a seedling in this, in this human forest. And, it just struck me, you know, and, and, and there are seedling trees and there are nurse trees and there are, you know, and we often talk about friends of ours that have passed on either from like Shigo, you know, from age or, you know, from a tragedy like Pete Donzelli and, and all of us, you know, know people that have met an untimely death and, you know, their legacy does live on and their memory, you know, learning from what happened to them and, and, uh, you know, they are, they are nursing another crop of arborists. You know, if, if we uh, keep talking about them and if we keep remembering that they are serving that function, you know, and what another example of the human forest, like in the forest, you know, the old trees, unless they're logged and taken away they're they ultimately completely give back to their, where they were, you know, they fall, they may cause some damage in that process, but they, they decay and give back and completely give back, go back into the soil, in a, which, you know, we do as well, which, although that's another topic, because I'm really, really bothered by the, you know, in Alberta, the, about 10 years ago, because when my parents died, I, I was, I didn't want to have them put into the cement vault. Even when you bury someone here in Alberta now, it's law that the coffin has to go inside a cement case and the lids put on top of it. So, like you're in this vault in the ground and it's like that to me, it goes against the giving back of my, my body going back into the earth. Right. But they don't allow open graves like that. They used to up until 10 years ago. And now they don't, but that's why I'm thinking of cremation, but I'm getting back in a little bit in the weeds here, but 
Um, absolutely. You know, um, where uh, our legacy and what we what we will continue to give after we're not here, I think certainly in our children will live on and 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 who knows in what other ways. Yeah, it's just, I think, a good way that we can all think about our life, right? Let's start that nurse log now. You don't have to wait till we're done. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, I've talked about it a little bit before on podcasts with other guests, too. There is a, a lineage to when somebody has planted a tree that continues on. Because I was, you know, that was visiting some friends and went by the house where my dad grew up. And there's a bunch of horse chestnuts, buckeyes along the front um, that my grandfather had planted. You know, my daughter and I had walked underneath those. And when you really stop and think about it and reach over and touch that tree, it's like that lineage goes on. And I recently just had a good friend of mine. He was a mentor when I first got into tree care. He passed away and some health issues wasn't tree related. He had not been in the industry for quite a while. And this just this last weekend, we went up to his family home and had a celebration of life for him. He had passed away about two weeks ago and he was wandering around the property with his brothers. And we were looking at trees that, you know, my friend Pete had planted. And it was just kind of, it was a, in an interesting way, you know, to make that connection back to somebody that's a part of your life because it's a growing thing too. It's different than a building or a rock or a bridge, you know, or something or a highway that they name after somebody when you name a tree. And I think the fact that it does, it it lives, it grows, and then it too will pass on um, is important in that. You know, we have, much like you know, we have a, my, you know, our, our family dog was 15 years old and in 2020 she passed away. And, you know, she's in the front yard now with a, a, a wonderful Kusa dogwood tree and I hang a bell in the tree and when the wind blows and the bell rings, and it's just like the dog barking at me. And it's a wonderful, you know, it's a, it's a neat, it's a neat thing. You know, she's still out there. She's still a part of our lives, giving back. Um, you know, in many ways. And uh, that tree that, that's there is it's better than a stone or a rock or something, you know, because that tree is going to grow and get big, you know, into something different. And so there is a that that legacy I find very interesting on trees that, you know, my family has planted or my friends have planted that are no longer here. That I can still go to that tree and uh, it's continuing on. Right. And it's it's I find that very uh you know, not to, you know, to, the pun is uplifting, right? But to be, you know, it's, it's interesting. And then I look forward to the day when those trees can be, you know, large enough that I can climb them I mean, see them from a whole nother perspective, right? Because that's always been the, the coolest part about being an arborist, a climbing arborist is, you know, we've seen trees from a totally different perspective. Most people don't see trees like a climbing arborist does. And that's, that's a, that's a gift. Yeah, it's a, uh... It certainly is an interesting industry in there, you know. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I guess a lot of people go through it or uh, or enter it and leave, but there seems to be quite a number that that do. I, I think there seems to be a time period if you if you're in it for five years or so, then you t- tend to there's a there's a seems a point where you're kind of stuck with it, or <laughs> it where it sticks with you, you know, you. Yeah. And you really like it. I mean, obviously, why else would you be doing it? Right. You wouldn't be doing it if you didn't like it. All of us. Right. Fascinating. You know, there's that whole thing, too, now, uh, Dwayne, of of these these younger guys. I mean, I never I never thought of this when I was climbing trees, but these rec climbs that these guys are doing our sons. Right. They're finding. Yeah. They're like they're trying to find the biggest trees and they're hiking through through miles and miles of brush to find these trees and climb them just, and they're, they're not 
publicizing it or anything. It's just cool to them. Like you said, Tony, you know, we're seeing it in a different perspective. Anybody else would. And, and it's kind of, I, I used to do a lot of hiking and mountain climbing. You do that with mountains, right? There's a mountain that I haven't climbed or yeah, nobody's climbed it. I want to climb it or want to get to the tallest one. And, and uh, these guys are doing it with trees. You know, the, the, um, I think uh, Luke and, and his buddies just found, they thought it was the biggest Sitka spruce and they went up and it was three stems and it broke into another three stems. And it, it wasn't the, the tallest Sitka spruce, but they, I think they recorded it as the most wood mass of any, <laughs> of any Sitka spruce, spruce. So they found something to record, but you know, that's a whole nother wreck <laughs> thing, right? Climbing trees. Who would have thought that yep. that'd be a fun thing to do? You know, and it, it's an interesting thing. Where, where, how the heck did that, like what's changed, Noah, do you think? Because, you know, I I did climb for fun. Like I, I would, you know, my first date with my wife, I took her and we climbed an elm and I made a slide line out of it. And But I never thought to go climbing big trees in the bush. I would just climb trees in a park. And I don't know where that shift occurred. Or maybe it just was never me. Maybe it's always been that way. But it seems like it's a lot more common these days. It's almost like in that extreme sport genre, right? The harder it is to get to and the harder, it, the worse it rains and the more cliffs you got to cross, the, the better it is, you know? Yeah. Or has that always been the way? Is that something new? Well, no, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. The I mean, the, the effort these guys are going to to climb these trees and and they keep all the location a secret, right? Because they don't want a million people going and climbing them. I, you've heard what's gone on in the Carmana here. So many people go out and look at these trees that there's no root compact by them. They have to limit the amount of people going there. So, yeah, they, they fight their way and they they're using drones again back when we were climbing, we didn't have access to things like drones and, and, and everything else that they're using to get up these trees, but they're finding the, the height of the trees through drones and, and uh, you know, they'll do one. And then when they're up that one, they're like, Hey, we saw another one that could be the biggest Western red cedar or whatever it is and marking them on maps. And it's, it's this whole process of it's ongoing and it's, it's uh, yeah, apparently there's a, a 200 foot club and a 300 foot club and all these things these guys have going on. So that's, that's uh, uh missing out on. okay the the in me tells me that they're not working hard enough during the week <laughs> I, know. I mean I, that's what the, the old curmudgeon in me that's what i said you guys aren't working hard enough you're climbing trees on the weekend you need to work harder <laughs> that's exactly right but, <laughs> no, no, no billable hours when they're doing that exactly right <laughs> i know for me working right. for a family business i quit every friday so i would but i went back monday so on the weekend i wasn't a tree guy <laughs> Oh, it's funny. Well, um, one thing that, that I guess is it, you know, uh, uh, hmm, how do I put the, does every arborist that works at a company end up doing side jobs or do they have to, or do they want to, you know, obviously there's friends and family, but how does that, because, you know, uh, as you you might know, Noah, DJs, you know, come full time for the first time with the tree companies, made that switch. We always wondered if he would and never, it was never an obligation. It was something that was fully up to him and he's made that switch, but but he can't stop doing tree work, right? So he's got, he's got so many days that he does side jobs, so to speak. And I mean, as a manager of a large company, I know that's, that, that's always a challenge. But it seems to always kind of go with the turf. I don't know if you and never did that in your career, and I don't know. This may not be the place to talk about that. But 
But like, what is it about like whether you're rec climbing or doing a tree for a friend because it's after hours? Like, huh? Is that just the way it is, or well, you know, it's, you know, and your your son, by the way, and and my son do that stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope. I mean, what what we say is if it's you know not in if it's in an area that we don't operate in, then how are we? You know, we we can't stop you from doing it. But we also say if you're gonna do it then make sure you're you have you're insured and you have um if anything happens you have compensation and a really good friend of mine uh, about five years ago was doing a side job and a tree fell on him and he had his leg amputated and because he wasn't on company time and he didn't have insurance he didn't have coverage for that so um and he was off work for you know six months to to a year and then and then he has a prosthetic leg and and a lot of that cost was out of his own pocket and his life has changed dramatically and that do you know all that for a few hundred bucks of a side job is it really worth it and that's that's why we have insurance when we're a company and that's why we have yeah. workers comp yeah. and everything else so again Dwayne, we can't stop these guys from doing it i i you know our our guys we don't want them to compete with us so we if it's out of our service yeah, yeah, area yeah. then then f- go ahead but make sure that you have coverage and use your own gear and come ready to work on mondays so that's that's all we can ask but yeah again it's it's the yeah, coverage yeah. thing and and my buddy will never be the same again and he regrets it every minute he gets up yeah you know that's a good point and there always is that risk that element of risk you know i uh yeah and even if you do even if you do you know I know that, uh, you know, we've helped DJ with, you know, w- that was an important part and he has, he is insured, but you're still out of commission. Like, you know, just because you're insured doesn't mean your leg grows back. Right. So, you know, you, you got to balance it out of that, that stuff. And maybe that's something why the older you get, the less you do it, you know, something to do with that insight that, that happens in time. Right. Yeah. And you're not always prepared. Like if, if, uh, my buddy was doing that job, with our company, there would have been probably at least one or two other people on site with him. And because he was doing it as a side job, he was alone. And, um, uh, you know, that's the other thing is there, are they prepared? Do they have all the equipment they need? Right. We, we, be, we're sure uh, our large companies that we work for, they have the equipment, they have the ropes, they have the blocks, they have the trucks, they have the chippers, they have the hobs, they have the DRCS or whatever they need. When these guys are out doing it on their own, are they prepared with all that gear? Now I know your son, Dwayne has more gear than most large companies in his truck, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely a gearhead. Like, like, you know, I, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but, but he, any of my traits that I did have, he's, he's fully picked up where I left off. There's no question about that. <laughs> well, you could be, you could be very, very proud of DJ. I, I don't know your other son, but I know DJ and he's one of the nicest people I've met in my entire life. So, You've passed on that trait to him, and you can be very proud of him. Well, thank you very much. There's, there's another side to the side work too that I run into every once in a while. That we'll get guy with the family company, and it's like I tell the guys, you know, you work five days a week, take a couple days off and do something else. You know, for as much as you love tree work, well, one, rest your body, rest your mind, because it is a hard dollar, mentally and physically, and uh, you know. And, and it takes some time and, you know, don't make the mistakes that I made, you know, spend some time with your family, you know, actually see them in the daylight every once in a while. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've, 
in the past, I'd done my share of, of side work, you know, friends and family. And then, you know, it is a nice, you know, cash little, you know, things get tight. It's nice to have that little bit of revenue. But I always tell guys too, it's like, you know, everything that you guys mentioned, you know, but if you're full-time work and tree work, you know, five days a week, you know, take a couple of days off, step back. You'll be happier and healthier in the long run. Um, you know, and you can collect your wits. Now with DJ, it's a little bit different because he's not doing production work, you know, anymore all day. So I can see, and I find myself in that suit, but I always caution guys too. I'm like, you know, don't, don't be afraid to take a day off, you know, um, step back. I wish somebody would have told me that. And then maybe I wouldn't have beat myself up so bad through my twenties and thirties. And, uh, you know, very good enjoyed a little bit more, a little bit more of those times. And, you know, and, and engage in hobbies or look, and if you're so involved in tree work, then find another aspect of arboriculture that can give you something when you don't want to, or can't climb anymore. Right. Think about the future a little bit too. So if you really want to spend your weekends doing tree work, well, don't climb, find something else in the arboricultural world that is a fallback plan for you because the day will come as a production climber where you either can't, or you don't want to climb anymore. And if what? you like <laughs> yeah, I know. Imagine that. Right. <laughs> and uh, so start to build that now, you know, you know, build that now. And since, you know, sometimes that's enough for the for some guys. Oh, yeah. You know, I, you know, maybe I can earn a little bit of money on the side, but I'm not climbing a tree doing it. You know, you can just do a podcast with Tony and Dwayne. That's enough. Yeah, you could because, you know, we're, we just get wealthy off this stuff. I mean, it's like, obviously finances was not a big motivator in our uh, job career <laughs> selection. So um, while you can make a good living doing true work, there's, I'm sure there's easier ways. There's got to be, I should have been a lawyer or something. I don't know. Maybe. I well, it's, uh, it, it's your fun having these conversations and, and it's, you know, when you take the time to, to, to just dig into it a little bit, it, it it gives you know it's like a good excuse to to have a, a conversation with with people that you know that normally you probably wouldn't have and that's what I'm really enjoying about tree actions um you know it, it, when you guys were talking about the planet for the future and and how trees with Tony and what you were talking about I, I think another example of trees give us again like they don't they 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 don't um they're not in a real hurry and they last a long time you know, and, and, uh, I wonder does it, how this whole concept of work and taking time off for yourself and resting, how does, how does a tree, would a tree view that, you know, how, or where, how are they an example of that? Cause I mean, they're photosynthesizing, I guess, whenever the sun's out. So I suppose you could call that working. How does a tree recreate or, or, or take a break? I don't know. That's uh inter or do they reach a retiring stage in life? <laughs> It's the old, you know, the Buddhist saying in nature, nothing's in a rush, but everything gets done. Right. And I think that's, that is a, a definite uh, life lesson you could take from trees and forests and natures in general. It's like everything gets done, but nothing's in a rush, you know, so kind of looking at it that way. And, and I, yeah, you know, you look at it from a career standpoint too, right. You know, like if you're, you start to learn to climb and everybody wants to advance, 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 like, well, you know, sometimes, you know, master the basics and go back to the basics. And I think trees are really good at that as well, too. For as big as they get, they're still fundamentally trees. Yeah, they don't make a lot of, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, we, uh, I don't know if you've listened to any of the podcasts, Noah, you'll see they're, they're all, they end up being around an hour, but they're not, exactly an hour we do, we we let them organically kind of flow and 
this, this is a, a natural t- sort of segue where it seems to, I don't know if, it's a, I often wonder if the, if the clock was made wrong or something, cause it's like 67 minutes or 70 minutes is, is almost like a natural break time. Whereas an hour is just a little too short and, and less than that's too short, but I don't know. Anyway, they know they, um, but, uh, I want to thank you for sharing your time with us, Noah. And I, you know, I'm sure we're going to see each other. And and uh, uh, the, the way you know, DJ is now permanent resident on the island, and he's not. You know, we're we're going to be out there. In fact, we're coming out in a couple of weeks here, so uh, maybe we can uh, go for a coffee or something. But thank you for sharing what your time with us and your thoughts on trees and telling us your story of your journey in the human forest and in the and in the in the in the urban forest in the arboriculture forest. So, um, yeah, thanks guys. Thanks guys. Tony was good getting to know you a little bit before the, the call. We'll, um, I'm sure we'll cross paths and we'll, we'll catch up and Dwayne, give me absolutely. a shout before you come out. If I'm around and the fish are still biting, we'll get out there and see if we can get a lunker. Wow. That would be okay. I might just do that. Really? Yeah. Okay. I might just do that. I, I...